We're in for a treat uh, this weekend, and I trust that uh, if you've already read uh, one of Don's books, you know what you're in for. If you've never read one of his books, uh, um, I'm excited for what you're going to you're about to experience. So let's give a warm lakeside welcome to Don Whitney. Yeah, I think I've got, no, it's already on? Good, very good. Well, I was going to look at my journal uh, to um, uh, look at the time when I was here before, and it was about 15 years. And yeah, you're talking about things that have changed from the picture. I had cancer when I was here and didn't know it. Uh, I would find out about two months to the day, almost. And um, uh, the doctor had said, if I had said, nah, I won't do this at Christmas, Christmas vacation, I'll wait till school is out in May, I would not have lived to see May. And so that was a life-changing event in so many ways. Uh, and uh, I won't say any more about that, but it's, it was, um, when you mentioned that date, that kind of arrested me there for a moment. So, but it's great to be back. Um, yeah, I had forgotten about the luggage as soon as you mentioned it. A lot of those memories came flooding back. When I came into the building, I mean, a lot of things that I, uh, uh, I mean, I've been to hundreds of churches since I was here. I've averaged about 94 airplanes a year for 22 years. And so I've been to a lot of places. But uh, since I came in the building, a lot of things came flooding back. And so it's good to be back. It's good to see you again. My wife, Kathy, is with me. Uh, she is uh, native to some somewhat to this area. She grew up in, until the eighth grade, the garden spot of Texas, uh, Texas City. I <clears throat> uh, was born in Galveston, but uh, is, uh, qualifies to be uh, in the Daughters of the Texas Republic. So um, she's proud of that, and so some of you would want to know that. So the invitation was to include her on this trip, and we appreciate that. Thank you, and uh, already... Uh, Ken and Kelly have been great hosts uh, since we got in today. I'm grateful we're able to make it uh, with, with the rain today and the cancellations yesterday. So great to be back. And so I want to get uh, into the subject for tonight, uh, which uh, the pastor and I had several emails about this because I kept kind of challenging his decision for me to talk about this. I said, you know, the people who are going to hear this, anybody who comes out on a Friday night these are your most devoted people. Are you sure you want me to talk about this on uh, Friday night? But uh, let me introduce this by saying, here's why even the most faithful churchgoers need to know the answer to the question, why I go to church. First, if God has spoken about it in the Bible, it's worth hearing about, right? It is worth to be proclaimed faithfully and to be received reverently. The second reason is those who attend church need to evaluate their reasons for coming and make sure it's not just out of habit. That's a good habit, but that's not the best reason. Uh, do you come for biblical reasons? Do you know the biblical reasons? Uh, we've all heard we should come to church, but have you ever heard that appeal based upon Scripture? And Third, church attendance may be a settled matter for you, but you may have children who are young or children who are even much older for whom it is not a settled matter. 
and you need to be prepared to give them reasons other than because I said so about going to church, uh, reasons to persuade them, uh, especially if they're at an age of almost rejecting something because it's tradition, because you are for it. Fourth, some of those who are hearing me tonight come to church perhaps only occasionally. Came across a survey that's uh, somewhat dated now, but I'm sure still very relevant, if, if not even in, in, in worst case, that one out of eight who describe themselves as born again, they say, I am a born again Christian, one out of eight, uh, never comes to church. And I'm sure it's even worse than that now. And anyone who claims to follow Christ, but who so seldom, if ever, attends his church, needs to be challenged with what the Bible says about this. And the fifth reason is there possibly some who are here even tonight who are thinking of giving up on coming to church altogether. They may have been faithful for many, many years, but they're no longer sure about continuing. And someone like that needs to hear this biblical challenge as well. So, did you go to church last Sunday? I'm, I'm sure almost all of you did, but if you did, you should realize you were in the great minority in America. Even since I was here last, uh, the percentage of Americans who go to church is, is probably uh, less than uh, 25%, significantly so, and dropping. Even though America has one of the highest percentages of churchgoers in the world, some three-fourths of your neighbors do not go to church. Now, let's begin to break this down with some excuses people have for not going to church, and I thought it might be good at this point, um, especially rec recognizing that Friday night's one of the tiredest times of the week, just a little bit of interaction here. Uh, so what are some of the reasons, if you invite someone to church, or to bring up the subject, and they would say, I don't go to church, what are some of the reasons we would hear? My brother says he can watch it on television. Okay. All right, I can get it through social media, I don't, or the media, I don't need to go to the trouble getting dressed and going there. Okay, what else? Work all week, uh, relax on the weekend. Yep, work all week, this is my only chance, this is my only day off. Everybody in the church is a hypocrite. Everyone in the church is a hypocrite. Yeah, which we're the only organization in the world that says you have to admit you are a hypocrite to get in. Um, <laughs> you know, so there's room for one more. What's, uh, what's another? I was hurt many years ago when the church didn't come visit. Yeah, well, or just in general, bad experiences. It can be a number of reasons why, uh, you know, it would be a, uh, a you know, they, maybe they uh, knew of a situation where someone was in the hospital, wasn't visited, or, you know, just a variety of reasons, that some bad experience. All right, someone else. Yeah, all the church talks about is money. I mean, just think about that. Would you go to church? Do you think any church could survive by talking about money? All Nobody would go to such a church. But a lot of people have the impression that's all, all they talk about. I'm, I've never heard of that church, but supposedly there, there are those churches where all they talk about is money. I don't think any church would last very long if that were the case. But many people have that impression. Someone else? Game, that's right. Football game. Other gods. Excuse me? Other gods. 
other gods. Yes, they may not recognize it, but yes, that's exactly what's going on. All right, personal relationship, I don't need a group experience. All right, they come, no one talks to me, I don't feel connected, so, you know, I don't, why do I need this lonely kind of experience? I went to church and no one was nice to me and I just Okay, yeah. No one talked to me. Don't like the music. Okay. Don't like the music. Don't like the preaching. Yes. Don't want to be held accountable. Yes. The preaching's too long. Preaching's too long. Well, the, see, the problem with that is they don't go where it's shorter. If that were the reason, I mean, so many of these you can just puncture immediately, but in their minds, yep, it, it holds up. Someone else. I don't believe in God. Yeah. I, this is not for me. I don't believe in God. my only day off or the other flip side of that is I have to work well all of these uh, are right the ones I were going to I was going to list here churches asking for too much money I mean there are seasons in which I'm sure some churches have special emphases but a church that uh, and some churches of course they have an offering every Sunday they mention that uh, but some would say, you know, they're all, it's all, every week they're asking for money and so forth. But I, I don't think a church that always talks about money is really out there. Uh, some would say, look, it's just boring. Uh, the sermons, regardless of length, are irrelevant. Um, I don't know if you listen to my boss, Dr. Moeller's podcast, daily podcast, The Briefing, which is outstanding. <laughs> they're two of the best episodes ever were this week. But uh, one was about a... Uh, um, a chapel service at a seminary in, in, uh, in New York and the sermon was on um, no this is, la this is earlier in the week this is another one this is also New York I think but this was a, a, a Presbyterian church that uh, the sermon was on uh, the, the evils of genetically modified vegetables Now, regardless of what you think about genetically modified vegetables, I'm not sure that's something that'd get me out of bed on a Sunday morning and would really, you know, change my life. Uh, but that was this, uh, delivered by an atheist, by the way. And supposedly this was a group who, uh, the, the story was that uh, people of all faiths and no faith were rallying together to kind of revive this, this church over social issues and causes. You know, it was not a theological unity. It was over, they kind of banded together over these causes. And that was illustrative of it, that the sermon was given even by an atheist on the, uh, the dangers of genetically modified vegetables. And uh, you, you go to the church's website, and then there are about maybe 30 or 40 people there. <laughs> And so this is supposedly resurrecting the, the liberal church, you know, on the left. This is how it's coming back as they're rallying around these social causes. Well, uh, 30 or 40 uh, people, many of them with blue hair, um, is not, does not a resurrection make, you know. Martin Lloyd-Jones said famously, you can put all the ecclesiastical corpses in the same graveyard, but that's not going to produce a resurrection. So, 
Sermons are irrelevant. Or, uh, when they do attend, they leave feeling guilty. Sunday's their only day off, and they have other things they need to do. Or, by contrast, I have to work on Sunday. They had a bad experience at church in the past. And, of course, some 350,000 churches in America, they let one church experience in the past, or one pastor from the past, or, or one church congregation uh, be representative of them all and be reason enough for them never to go back. Uh, put that in context of other things. You know, I had, a, I had an angry usher at a baseball game, so I'll never go back to another sporting event, or you can go on with that. Uh, no one's ever invited them. Or they think their lifestyle is unacceptable at church goers. You know, if I show up, people will judge me or I'll feel guilty or they'll look down upon me or I'll just be out of place. Or they just say, look, there's nothing I need there. Church has no, I have no interest in, in what they're offering. They don't have enough religious interest. Or they say, look, I just don't have time. You go if you've got time. It's great for you. I want you to enjoy that. But... Um, I just don't have time. I've got too much going on. How many of these reasons does it take to keep someone from church? Yeah, just one. Just one. And you listed, some of you mentioned some that I don't even have on my list here. Let me spend the rest of our time emphasizing 12 biblical reasons for going to church. First of all, it is a biblical requirement for all Christians. Now, that's pretty bold, especially in the light of a survey a nationwide cross-section of Americans, not just born-again Christians, or say they're born-again, uh, half agree with the statement that the Bible does not command people to attend a church. That is a man-made requirement. I've come across a lot of professing Christians who agree with that. But the Bible is very plain. Hebrews 10.25, let us consider one another in order to stir up one another to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some, but exhorting or encouraging one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. When the church assembles together, don't neglect that. And since the times of the New Testament, when has the church assembled together? On the Lord's day, whenever possible, on the Lord's day. So that was the apostolic command here. The apostolic example was they did this on the Lord's Day. And so you put that command and example together. And that has been uh, a, a very uh, strong principle from the New Testament teaching that there is a requirement for all Christians to go to church. Now this is something that was written in hard times. Uh, the author recognized that these... Christians who had been, were of Jewish background, remember it is a letter to the Hebrew Christians there, uh, to openly identify as believers, to show up, uh, likely would end up with persecution, the confiscation of their property, even imprisonment. And if they visited one of their brothers or sisters in prison, they would say, oh, are you one of these guys too? Well, you just go in there with them. So it was very risky to attend. And it was already a habit, notice it says, of some. But the writer of the Hebrews says, this is, no, this is exactly what you need. This is what put, will put the steel in your backbone. The very thing you need the most is going to be found when you gather with, you don't forsake the assembling of others. Now, if this ended 
our evening ended together right here, that should be reason enough for anyone who professes devotion to Christ and submission to the Word of God to, to attend church. Now again, you, you understand when I say that, I mean a Bible-preaching, Bible-believing church. And I don't mean just merely walk in the door. It's not a legalistic responsibility, not just something we check a list. But uh, to find, when I say church, I mean a good, healthy, Bible-believing church or the closest one can find to such in, in their proximity. So if you profess to be a Christian, it is dangerously deceptive to think, as is the habit of some, according to this verse, that you can get the salvation and security of heaven you need without the message of the, uh, through the message of the church and then withdraw from the church. Speak of loving Christ while neglecting what Christ loves. His body is, is, is hypocritical. Second, going to church helps prevent backsliding and apostasy. It doesn't absolutely eliminate the possibility. Do you know the difference between these two terms, by the way? These two biblical terms? An apostate is someone who appears to be a Christian, but then, and fools a lot of people perhaps, but then proves that all along they were not. That's Judas. That's Demas. When Jesus said, one of you will betray me, did all the 11 apostles turn and look at Judas? Yeah, you know, we knew it was that guy. We are suspicious of him all along. No, what did they do? What did they say? Is it I? They were looking around. They had no idea which one of them it would be. And do you think the apostle Paul was pretty good at evaluating whether someone was a Christian or not? Do you think he had a pretty good idea of what the marks of salvation are? Demas fooled the apostle Paul for years. Both of them, Judas and Demas, proved that in the end, they were not truly converted. A backslider, on the other hand, to be a backslider, you have to have something real to slide back from. But the difference between a backslider and an apostate is the backslider comes back. That's how they proved they were not apostate. This is, this is John Mark, who... Uh, left Paul and Barnabas on the mission field, came back home. And when Barnabas wanted to take him on the next missionary journey, Paul said, no way. And they ended up splitting over this. Paul and Barnabas did. Barnabas took Mark and went off, and Paul took Silas and went off, and they never worked together again. Though later Paul would say, when you come, Timothy, bring Mark, who is of great service and usefulness to me. And then this is the Mark that wrote our second gospel. But there was a period of time where the Apostle Paul, who was a pretty good judge of whether someone's saved or not, said, there's no way I'm going to take that guy with me. But John Mark proved that he was the real deal, because even though for a while he may have appeared to be not a Christian, at least he abandoned in such a way that uh, Paul would never work with him again, he proved he was the real deal when he came back. Can a person die in a backslidden condition and still go to heaven? Well, theoretically, yes, but you don't want to find out. It may be they died in the backslidden condition, never returned because they were never converted in the first place. But either one of those is, a, is not a good option. And one of the best ways of preventing that is through church attendance. We're back to Hebrews 10.25. 
that, that warned of this very thing. It's the habit of some. And there are statistics that show that if you don't go to church for a month, the odds are almost two to one you won't go for a year. You don't go to church, you start to backslide. Now, that, that's, again, it's two to one. It's not absolute. I mean, once I had my cancer surgery, it was at least a, a month before I went back to church, but I couldn't wait to get back. That if a person finds enough, enough excuses not to go for a month, those begin to snowball and some effect happens in their heart and there's a much greater tendency that they're going to drift spiritually. When I was pastoring, as I did a church in the Chicago suburbs for almost 15 years, a couple in our church told me how several years of infrequent church attendance had withered their spiritual lives. But then family tragedy came that prompted them to come back to church and the spiritual snowball effect began to work in the opposite direction as they returned to faithfulness and their personal devotional lives, their family relationships, their service to the Lord and more all experienced renewal as byproducts of their returning to the church because so many of the means of grace that we'll talk about in, in a few moments were feeding their souls and had the impact of preserving them in in the faith. Third one is it's one of the most important means of spiritual fellowship and encouragement. You're familiar with Acts 2.42, the description, first description of the, of the early church. It said they continually devoting the, themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship or koinonia, which we'll talk about tomorrow, God willing, the breaking of bread and prayer. So one of the Four main characteristics of the church's gatherings was, was fellowship. And then in Hebrews 10.25 again, we're told, don't give up meeting together, as is the habit of some, but let us encourage one another. Where did that encouragement come? When they met together. There's an encouragement that comes from uh, the fellowship. And briefly, Speak of something I'll spend much of the morning on tomorrow. Fellowship, the big difference between socializing and fellowship. When I say the word fellowship, my fear is that the picture that comes into most people's minds is actually socializing. Socializing is talking about news, weather, sports, work, family, politics. That's good. That's healthy. That's normal. The godless Christians do a lot of socializing, but it's not Fellowship, or on a few occasions I'll use a Greek word because you, you're already familiar with it, koinonia. And I, I'll, I will tomorrow morning repeatedly use koinonia just because when I say that our English word fellowship, again, I think we're so inoculated against what that really means that the picture that we imagine is always really socializing. But koinonia is when we talk about God and the things of God. And I contend we do much less of that than we think, even in these walls. But we desperately need it. It is a spiritual discipline, and, and we're going to hear so much more about that tomorrow, so I won't dwell on it. But Koinonia, talking about God and the things of God, you know, what does this verse mean? And, and, and discussing it with other people, to hear testimonies of answered prayer, to hear uh, testimonies of uh, people getting to share the gospel, to 
to talk about the things of God and how they apply to our lives. These, this is what fellowship is, and it strengthens us. And we get encouraged by this, and where does that happen? It happens when we don't neglect our gathering together. Just the examples of other believers. I mean, just tonight, you've had people, okay, one after the other. These people have been faithful in this fellowship. 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. It's a monument of faithfulness that encourages people. Younger people need to see that. I remember as a little boy, you know, there are a couple of men in our church in particular that, uh, you, you know, one of them in particular, Mr. Rhodes, he had to sit like on the second pew so he could see and so he could hear. And a very, very old man. But to me, he was almost, you know, like a, <laughs> a holy man. You know, he was a saint. And I, I would look at him and see him in the intensity of his face as he's worshiping God. That had an impact on me as a little boy. That all his life, he's been faithful to God like this. That was an encouragement to me then. That's an encouragement to middle-aged believers who see someone older than they are, who see someone who's weathered the, uh, the trials and difficulties of life, the, the pressures of the sandwich generation who's taking care of older, older parents and younger ones. And so here's someone who's weathered that, who's still faithful. Church body encourages us like that. How many times have you come and been encouraged by a word? You're just hanging on by a thread. You're a bruised reed, a smoldering wick. And you come to church and someone puts their arm on your shoulder or prays with you or cries with you or you hear a word from the pulpit or you hear a testimony, formal or not, from someone who's been in similar circumstances and you're encouraged to keep on one more day. That happens at church. Also helps express obedience to the greatest commandment. Mark 12, 28 through 30, a man asked Jesus, which is the first commandment of all? And he answered, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. How can we believe we're trying to fulfill the greatest of all commandments? How can we say we want to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength when we won't even obey his command to meet regularly with other Christians? How can we say that we love Jesus with everything that's within us when we can't even get out of bed on Sunday morning to worship him with his people? Is God your highest good, your greatest love, your highest priority? Well, going to church is one way we demonstrate that. A, a quick unreluctant willingness of, to turn your back on the worship of God in order to work or to attend ball games, including your children's, entertain guests, to participate in, in recreational sports may indicate to your family, your friends, or others that God really is not your first love, especially when you allow the world or unbelievers to set your schedule and keep you from the worship and the work of God. When I was in high school, I played four sports. Because of that, I had uh, knee surgery on my 17th birthday. Because of that, I had my knee replaced just a few weeks ago. Because of that, I, I'm sitting a lot. <laughs> well, you're standing here, so please don't misunderstand. Um, I went on and played baseball in college. 
played sports, loved sports. And my parents, when I was growing up, came to every game in every sport, no matter how inconvenient the timing, no matter how far the drive, except out-of-town Sunday baseball games that were scheduled at a time requiring that they miss church. Now, because they came to all my other games, I knew they loved me. But because they didn't come to the ones that conflicted with the worship of God, I knew they loved God more. And I needed to know that. That was critical for me to see that. Next. Going to church follows the example of Jesus who participated in the public worship of God. Dr. Luke tells us in Luke 4.16 that as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now granted, that was participation in the Jewish worship of God, but it was the way God had ordained for worship to be done at that time. And the principle remains the same. We want to be like Jesus. Like Jesus, we will attend the public worship of God ordained for our day. Now wouldn't you think if anyone ever had a pass in going to church, it would be Jesus? I mean, think about it. He has this messianic ministry to fulfill. All these people to heal. All this teaching to do. He knew he had a very limited time to do it. Yet once a week, he would pull aside from all that and sit and listen to some dusty old rabbi preach what must have been to him a boring sermon. I think only a preacher can really understand what I mean when I say he must have often sat there thinking, boy, I could do better than that. Or man, he butchered that text. Oh yeah, how do you know? Well, I wrote it. Um, but he was there. Nobody has job stress like Jesus had job stress. I mean, I'm just kind of becoming aware, I think, of, of the demands. I noticed a verse recently I'd never noticed before, though I'd read it literally more than 100 times. It says, and in the countryside, the villages, and the towns, people were constantly bringing people for him to heal. And the larger picture is, 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 says that even... There, there's a time during his popularity that the people couldn't funnel through the streets of, of the villages and towns. They had to like bypass them in the fields because they just couldn't get through there. I mean, you can imagine what the medical conditions were like in those days. And now here's someone who can heal anyone of anything. He raises the dead. He restores limbs. He restores sight to people born blind. Can you imagine people coming for that? And, you know, and everybody seemed to have some sort of illness and birth defects, you know, were much, much higher then. And so there are so many, uh, so many problems. And so there were no medicines, really. So you can imagine everybody had some kind of problem. And you would walk over the top of your best friend to get your baby to Jesus, wouldn't you? And it was like that constantly. People were coming from great distances. And if you could see it from the air, it would look like a, a, a swarm of bees moving with the queen at the center, but, you know, all of them, you know, pushing in to get to the queen, like bees would do, you know, all trying to get to the center and to get to Jesus. And there we have that picture that shows this when the woman who touches the hem of his garment and is healed, you know, and Jesus 
felt power coming from me. He stopped and said, who touched me? And Peter goes, who touched you? Everybody's trying to touch you. That's what he said. Everybody's trying to touch you. I mean, I envisioned the disciples just like crowd control going, you know, let the man through, let the man through, get back, get back. It was like that all the time. You think that would wear you out? And the deal was he could actually heal everybody. He actually could meet every need that people brought to him. And so what are you going to do? Well, everybody's going to bring their need to Jesus. But he would pull aside from that and, and not heal people who needed healing, not heal babies who needed healing, not perform miracles who needed, who needed them, not feed people who needed it. He'd pull aside and sit and listen to the word of God being proclaimed. That's the example of Jesus, an example of where to follow. Now, Jesus is much more than our example, right? He's our Lord, our Savior, our King, our friend, our creator, our judge, our substitute, and on and on. But he's not less than our example of walking with God. And so, Jesus found the public worship of God to sit and listen with God's people worth his time. And to follow his example, we need to do the same. Going to church is a testimony of God's work in the world. Jesus teaches this by, by implication when he said, Matthew 12, 30, He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather me scatters abroad. Are you with Christ? Are you against him? Are you involved in his work of gathering into his family, the church? Or are you scattering people from him? Jesus allows for only two kinds of people here. Someone might say, well, I'm, I'm not against you, Jesus. But the example of their lives denies their professed loyalty because the work of the church is a work of gathering. Going to church testifies that you support that work, but when people stay away, they're scattering. They're scattering their children. They're scattering friends they could have brought. And they're scattering influence for Christ they may have had by attending church. Of course, one of the responses people might have is, well, you don't have to go to church to show that you support Christ's work. I give to Christian causes. Well, that's true, but only up to a point, and a very low point at that. People know where you go on Sunday morning, don't they? If they're out exercising, if they're out mowing the yard, if they're out gardening, they know where you go on Sunday morning. And they see by this what's important to you and that you're committed to support the work of God in the world. And staying away from church does not help gather people to Jesus. Here's another reason. Going to church enables you to hear in person the preaching of God's word. And we're going to talk more about this, God willing, on Sunday morning. So I won't dwell on it here. But the first, I think, response a few minutes ago was, well, I, I don't have to go to church. I can watch preached word on, on radio, I mean, on television. I can hear it on podcasts, on radio. And, you know, so that's, and it's more and more effective today. It's better produced. It can look far more interesting on television with all of the special effects, the, the, the setting and the editing and everything else. Um, 
But there's something that I, and I will mention this in some detail Sunday morning, God willing, but about the physical presence. You know, online education is obviously burgeoning. Um, at uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, that's our legal name, um, we have several metrics we measure in terms of total headcount. How many people take at least one class from Southern Seminary? That's one metric. Another is how many full-time equivalents do we have? Nine hours in graduate school is full-time. Uh, so uh, if we have one student taking nine hours, that's one full-time equivalent. If we have two students, one takes six hours, one takes three, that's one more full-time equivalent. And so that's one of our metrics. Another is what we call hours sold. So if we have 10 students taking classes, 10 of them are taking nine hours. I mean, they're taking nine hours. Are 10 of them taking one hour? Well, that's a difference between 100 hours sold and 10 hours sold. That's a very important metric. Well, recently we crossed the threshold. We now have more hours sold online than in person. And yet we have one of the strongest on-campus uh, presences of, of any seminary. And that's what we emphasize. And for a very good reason. I've never known a fully online student who didn't say, I wish I could have done more of this on campus. I've never heard one on-campus student say, I wish I'd stayed home and done this online. We've never had one fully online student admitted to our PhD program. It's not because they're not as smart, it's just, just a number of factors. They never get to have lunch with a professor. They never get to sit down and have coffee. They never get to talk to them after class. And there's so many things that they just miss when they come to visit and then they had a conversation with a student this week. Well, I'm, I'm not sure whether to move to campus or not. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a hassle for us to do that. Well, you're not the first one to deal with this, you know, and you know, unless you have a good reason, you need to move to campus and be here because you and I won't have conversations like this in the hallway like we're doing right now if you do this online. I'll never meet you if we do this online. You can't come up after class. We can't have so many other connections if you're not here in person. And the same is true about watching the greatest online presentation of the Word of God. Uh, knowing this church as I do, I'm sure many of you, you know, listen to John MacArthur. But it's, it's not the same as in person, is it? It's just not the same hearing the Word of God in person. And that happens when you attend a local church. More on that Sunday. It enables you to obey Christ's command to take the Lord's Supper. Jesus himself said, do this in remembrance of me. Luke twenty two nineteen is the will of God by direct command of Jesus that we take the Lord's Supper. But this was given to the local church, not to individual Christians. We're not to serve the Lord's Supper to ourselves in our personal devotional life. I've written a book out there on family worship. By the way, you don't have all my books out there. My dissertation's been published. Kathy did a portrait of Jonathan Edwards on the front. Even It cost me $75 to buy a copy of my own book. You don't have that one out there. 
So if anybody's dying to get that one, I can tell you, you can get it on Amazon, but uh, there's probably a good reason why you didn't have a $75 book here. Um, but I have a little book up there on family worship. And as much as I advocate the, the benefits and the practice of family worship, families aren't to serve the Lord's Supper to themselves. That was given to the local church. It's under the discipline of the local church. It's under the supervision of the local church. And where do you get that? Where do you obey Christ's command to take the Lord's Supper? It's only when you come to church. Imagine uh, not getting to have that precious experience. It enables you to experience blessings from God he does not give in private worship. I believe we are to worship God privately and alone. That's a personal spiritual discipline. I write about that in Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, book that's out there. But there are blessings that we get only when gathered with God's people and we worship with the church. Most of you are very familiar with the statement in 1 Corinthians 6 that as individual Christians, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. I can point to every Christian in this room and say, Temple of the Holy Spirit, Temple of the Holy Spirit, Temple of the Holy Spirit. And in our westernized, individualized Western Christianity, we know that very well. But did you know that seven times it says the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit? 1 Corinthians 3, which, you're ready to learn this, is actually before 1 Corinthians 6, says that the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And anyone who tries to destroy that temple, God himself will destroy, which is a passage that has mis been misunderstood for many years uh, by, by so many for good reason that it refers to suicide. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. You destroy God's temple, God will destroy you. But the you is plural in chapter 3. This is, you know, the King James used to have you and ye. You was you individually. Ye was you plural. Fortunately, down south, we have the same thing. I can say, would you please, you know, get me a bottle of water? Or I can say, you all <laughs> are dismissed. Uh, you know, we can, we have that down here. Uh, but in many English translations now, it just says you, and you don't know if it's you plural or you singular. Well, in chapter 3, it's you plural. You, the church, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And anyone who tries to destroy the church, you're an enemy of God. God's going to destroy you. Chapter 6, it says you individually are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that makes a big difference. But their experiences with God, my point here is this, their experiences with God you will only get at the, the temple. And what is the temple of the Holy Spirit? The local church. You can have the devotional life of a George Mueller, maybe the greatest man of prayer and faith in the history of the church. You can have the greatest devotional life personally of anyone in the church, and amen. And their experiences with God you will only get alone with God, you will never get at church, but conversely. The people who think, well, I could just be happy to take my personal spiritual disciplines and go off and be some evangelical monk, an evangelical nun. I don't need that godly, uncommitted bunch down at the church. They only slow me down anyway. They can have the greatest devotional life in the world, but their experiences with God, he will give only at the temple. 
Right now, this is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God is present in ways he is not present out in the parking lot. Though he's omnipresent. But it's not the sacredness of this building. If we all got up and went out into the parking lot, God would then be present in the parking lot in a way he would no longer be present in here. But this gathering of people, whether we go outside or stay in here, this is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And their experiences with God, he gives only in the temple. If a person really loves God and wants to experience God to the full, they're going to want to be where he manifests himself most clearly, right? There are manifestations of God, manifestations of his love, his blessings, his mercy, his grace. He only gives in the temple. Every picture of heaven that we have is congregational. Do you realize that? There's no mention of anything in the Bible about heaven that's where it's, it's individual. Will we ever be alone in heaven and alone with God in heaven? Well, maybe, but the Bible never presents it that way. Instead, you look through Revelation, it's always, you know, numbers, ten thousands upon ten thousands. And you know, it's always the great throng saying, holy, holy, holy. What's the most like that in this world? It's the gathering of his people together. The temple of the Holy Spirit, which is the local church. Seven to one, it says the church is the temple. It is true that individually we are temples of the Holy Spirit. But the Bible's emphasis is that the local church is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And only church helps prevent an unbalanced Christian life. Just a couple of more here. Christians who do not attend church are usually the most unbalanced Christians. One of the things... One of the most unknown things about being a seminary professor is how many emails and letters we get from, shall we just say, theological weirdos who have figured out everything in the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, who, know, who wrote the book of Hebrews. I mean, they got everything all, all sorted out. And they, they feel like, you know, they, they, they're supposed to tell us so we can then inform all of our students and help all the churches. Um, I mean, every discipline has its weirdos, too. You know, the biblical studies guys, they've got their weirdos and, you know, who talk about who they had some experience and God revealed to them who wrote Hebrews and all this. My, my field is biblical spirituality. I guarantee you, nobody has weirdos like the spirituality weirdos. Um, I mean, we, we top them all. Um, and almost all of these people, if you probe, they don't go to church. They're, they're kind of fringe people. They, they've come up with some insight and nobody else has it. So, you know, they don't want to associate it with people like that who aren't enlightened, who don't have their insight. You know, and really what happened is people are like, <laughs> you're wrong or you're out of balance you're out of touch or, or you need to consider this and they don't want to hear it the most unbalanced Christians are those generally outside the church because in the local church you've got people who love you who are willing to speak to your situation who are willing to speak correction you have people who, who are unbalanced otherwise but they sit and they get correction and teaching from the pulpit and from Bible study classes 
And just from hearing the perspectives of, of the local church that has different people with different gifts, different experiences, different studies they've done, different insights, just different backgrounds, and all of it comes together to present a more balanced picture of true biblical revelation than, than these people get by some obscurist, uh, obscurantist study they've done in some strange way. And they end up the kind of people that are being blown back and forth by spiritual fads. Pastor read for us Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Right there in that passage, God gives gifted men to the church to equip it, to strengthen it, and to keep it from being blown back and forth by every wind of doctrine and, you know, just being unbalanced, carrying from one side to the other. Going to church is one indication you have eternal life. By itself, it's not an indication, but it is one very favorable indication. And this comes from 1 John. 1 John 3.14, which says, we, By this we know we have passed out of death into life because we, we love the brothers. We love the brothers. That's one of the ten indications John gives. By this we know we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Who say, I, I, the Holy Spirit dwells in those people. And so much of the Spirit's ministry to me is through them. And to cut myself off from them is to cut myself off in so many ways from the ministry of the Holy Spirit to me. And I couldn't bear that. And I love what they love. I love the God they love. I love the book they love. I, I love the things of God. The love of God has been poured out in their hearts like it's been poured out in my heart. And I want to experience the love of God, that, how God loves me through them. God ministers to me through them. So I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. I feel more in common with them than blood relatives who aren't in Christ. And that's a mark of someone who knows God. That kind of attitude. And if you have that attitude, you're going to be with those people, right? You're going to be at church. Can you imagine anyone saying, I love, I love God, and then saying, but I don't care for his family. If you think that's realistic, that a person can really love God, but have no concern for his people, try that on your spouse. Look at your spouse and say, I love you. I don't care if I ever see you again. But I really love you. That's what people say, who say, I love God, but I don't care if I ever see his family, if I ever see his people. No, we know we've passed out of darkness, death into life, because we love the brothers. Not just because we have a lot in common socioeconomically, but there's something deeper than that. And that's, that's the realm of fellowship we're going to talk about, God willing, in the morning. Conversely, in the last one here, not going to church is one indication of not being in God's family. Also from verse John, this church attendance typically characterizes Christians, people who aren't interested in going to church, may have that attitude precisely because they're not Christians. And I base this bold statement on 1 John 2.19, where John clarifies for his readers why some people have stopped being a part of their fellowship. They went out from us, he explains, 
because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. And he reiterates, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. He said if they were really of God's people, they would have remained with us. Now that that is not to say that just because someone leaves a given church, they're not a Christian. They can go to another church. And their church is worth leaving. But just because someone leaves a church and goes to another church, you can't anathematize them and say they went out from us because they were not of us. It's one thing to leave a church and then find another faithful church. It's something else when someone says, I don't want to be a part of any church. That's what John is talking about here. Their absence reveals the spurious nature of their Christianity. Well, let me wrap this up now. Some final considerations. Let's make very clear, lest anyone misunderstand, that going to church does not make you a Christian. You must know Christ, the head of the church, through repentance and faith, in order to be right with God. Let's make no mistake about that. Here's why knowing Christ is so crucial. It is through His life, His death, His resurrection that we're made right with God. It's not just we conform to the commands and we come to church and we like coming to church, we try to have a good attitude, but we must repent and come to faith in Christ. Let's be very clear about that and unmistakable. While going to church usually indicates a person is a Christian, going to church by itself certainly does not make a Christian. But all this is is good and necessary. Anyone who feels this as burdensome I think fails to realize anything God commands is good. It's beneficial. If private worship would be sufficient, God wouldn't have commanded, given us the command in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. It's a good God who gives every command in love. Third, not going to church, self-centered and very foolish. I base this on Proverbs 18.1. A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all sound judgment. Someone who isolates themselves from the local church usually indicates he's more self-centered than God-centered by that. Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. If I even pretend to be trying to obey that verse, to consider you as more important than me, I'm going to be around you, right? How can I say I don't want to have anything to do with you when I consider, if I consider you as more important than myself? So it's not wise judgment, it's foolish pride that makes a person think, I don't need those people at church. It's a pride that says, I don't need what other believers need. Maybe they need the fellowship and encouragement. You know, like Paul Simon, I am a rock. I am an island. I have my books and my poetry to protect me. I don't need the church. Maybe they need worship. Maybe they need preaching. Maybe they need corporate prayer. I don't. Fourth, not going to church is willful disobedience to the authority of God. Let's just make that plain. 
said, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And fifth, going to church maturely means knowing that no church will be perfect. No church is going to be free of hypocrisy or conflict or other offensive things. Ultimately, everyone has to say, can I live with what I don't like about this church? It's going to be that with every church. There's going to be things in every church you won't like. And you have to say, can I live with what I don't like about this church? It's because we're comprised of people. Even the best churches have people who don't live up to what they profess always. And there are people in situations that where the, there is no good church, really, within reasonable driving distance. And uh, that, that's, that's a struggle. But the option is not no church. Apostle Paul asked in 1 Corinthians 1.22, Do you despise the church of God? 11.22. Do you despise the church of God? Well, if not... I call on you directly to commit yourself to the services of your church faithfully. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the, for the body of Christ. How beautiful is the body of Christ. Your son died for the church. The same Jesus who, even while we were yet sinners, died for us. He died for us not only individual, as individual sinners that we, we, we feel that, but perhaps we need a greater sense. He, he died for a group of sinners, and we should have a sense of loving that group like Jesus did. Lord, I pray you'd bring much lasting fruit from this time together. Restore the, the motivations of people for being in this place. Help them to rejoice in them again and be reminded and refreshed and strengthened of all these things from the Word of God. I pray your blessing on the balance of this conference. May much lasting fruit come from it. May it strengthen this church. And I ask all this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. Thank you, Don. That last point that Don made is that there's no perfect church. I want to encourage you to take your little conference guide here and turn to the back page. And uh, we included a, a quote in there from C.H. Spurgeon. And uh, this is one of my favorite, all-time favorite quotes about the church. And just look at the first half of it there. Spurgeon says, Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect. And I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I became a member of it. Still imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us as believers. Amen? And so um, I commend that quote. I commend this message tonight to you, um, Don and I both agreed this would be preaching to the choir, if you will. If you came, on, came to church on Friday night, you don't need to hear about why to go to church. But the Bible does say that uh, the ministry of pastors and teachers is to stir us up by way of reminder. Amen? So we just need to be reminded of these biblical truths. 
And those, that was a great reminder, Don. Thank you so much. Well, we've got a lot more of that ahead. So I uh, want to encourage you to come back tomorrow. Uh, we're going to have a continental breakfast served here uh, from 8 to 8.45. So come on out and have breakfast with us. And uh, we're going to get going at 8.45. We have two sessions tomorrow morning, uh, both on fellowship. What does it mean to fellowship or why fellowship uh, with the church? And then, of course, we have our normal Sunday morning uh, scheduled, 9 o'clock, equipping hour. We'll be right in here. Uh, Don's going to be talking about why serving the church. And then uh, we'll all go back over to the activity center for worship service. And he's going to talk about why, um, why listen to preaching in the church. So, but... Uh, want to encourage you through the course of the weekend, make sure you come and greet uh, Don and his wife Kathy, and I know they would love to uh, meet you and just thank them for their ministry, and maybe just uh, share one, one way that God has used uh, something he said this weekend, or even maybe something he wrote in a book that's really changed your life, impacted your life. Uh, that's always an encouragement to a pastor, to a preacher, uh, to hear how God's using uh, your ministry uh, for God's glory in people's lives. And... Uh, and I think also uh, it's time for dessert. So I want to say thank you uh, for bringing dessert. I saw you all bringing that in. It was uh, get, making me hungry as I saw you all bringing that dessert in. So uh, we've got all that dessert out on tables over here in the hallway. So what we want to ask you to do, if you have kids uh, in the nursery or the children's program, please go get them first, okay? Uh, relieve our nursery workers, our, our children's workers, and, uh, and then go through the line and get some dessert. Uh, and then just come on back in here and enjoy some fellowship this evening around the tables. And uh, so if we, when, once you're dismissed, if you could all uh, go out that door, go out the back door and start a line this way, okay? So we don't have chaos if some, some of you go that way, wrong direction, okay? So again, thank you so much for being here. And uh, we will, Lord willing, see you tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Enjoy your dessert. Truth of fire.